Due to the graphic nature of this week's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic abuse and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Linda leaned close into her bedroom mirror, painting a stroke of black eyeliner above her big brown eyes. Everyone said they were her best feature, and tonight she needed to impress. It was the Saturday after Rosh Hashanah, and Joyce Kilmer Park in the Bronx would be packed. Fingers crossed, she might even run into her ex-boyfriend, Leo. Linda put on her best win-him-back heels and squeezed her waist into a black sheath skirt. She examined herself in the mirror. She really needed to get those diet pills refilled. She threw on a loose-fitting gray sweater, checked her makeup one last time, and grabbed her purse. Later that night, attorney Bert Pugash parked his brand new Chrysler Imperial across the street from Joyce Kilmer Park. He jogged over to catch up with a friend he saw walking towards the crowd. As they made their way into the park, someone else caught Bert's attention. A young woman in a gray sweater and black skirt, standing by herself, her dark hair blowing slightly in the breeze. Bert squinted at her through his horn-rimmed glasses and said, Look at that one. She's a dazzler. From first sight, he knew he'd met the girl of his dreams. He had to have her. And if he couldn't, he'd make sure no one else could have her either. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is our new podcast, Crimes of Passion, on the Podcast Network. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? This is our first of two episodes on Linda Riss and Bert Pugash, a couple whose romance spiraled out of control in 1959. This week, we'll follow their relationship from the very first meeting to its violent apparent end. Next week, we'll look at the fallout of the crime and the unbelievable ending of this couple's story. The majority of the information in this podcast comes from interviews published in Barry Steinbach's 1976 book, A Very Different Love Story. Wherever possible, Bert and Linda's recollections have been corroborated and checked against other interviews, articles, and court documents. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. Linda Riss was an ugly duckling. Born in 1937, she was raised in a one-bedroom apartment in East Bronx, New York, by her mother Bertha, Aunt Ella, and Grandma Amalia. 
Even growing up in a house full of independent women, Linda wasn't insulated from the cultural imperative of the 40s and 50s. A woman is only as good as the husband she can attract. If she wasn't pretty, she was hopeless. This was not good news for chubby little Linda and her old hand-me-down dresses. When she was 12 years old, she was invited to a neighborhood boy's birthday party. She spent hours curling her straight dark hair into billowing waves and put on a brand new dress her mother had bought for the occasion. But when she got to the party, no one told her she looked pretty. None of the boys asked her to dance. As she stood to the side, watching her friends flirt and slow dance, she came to the conclusion she would never be good enough. No one would ever care about her. According to a study published in the Journal of Early Adolescence, appearance satisfaction is directly correlated to general self-esteem. Girls who were less satisfied with their appearance at age 10 reported declines in self-esteem from age 10 to age 14. Linda carried that low self-esteem throughout her teenage years. She hated her body, but she could never stick to a diet. She rarely dated, since the boys she was interested in were never interested in her. In December of 1955, just a couple months before her 19th birthday, Linda decided to make a change. She made an appointment with the family doctor, who wrote her a prescription for the best diet pill on the market, amphetamines. After three months of buzzing, crashing, and barely eating, Linda had lost 30 pounds. Under the baby fat, she was a stunner. Boys told her she looked like Elizabeth Taylor, but the slim figure she saw in the mirror didn't quite register in her mind. She still saw herself as the chubby girl who boys never wanted to dance with. A little after Linda's 20th birthday, in the spring of 1957, she started dating a boy named Leo. He was 27, charming, good-looking, and ready to start a family. After three months, he told her he wanted to marry her. The very thought of marriage made Linda's heart stop with fear. She'd heard enough from her divorcee mother and aunt. Men can't be trusted. They'll betray you, lie to you, hit you, hurt you, take everything you can give. Linda told Leo unequivocally that she wasn't ready for marriage. Not now, not next year, not ever. He told her, that's fine. He wouldn't be calling her anymore. Across the city, a young man named Burton Pugash shared Linda's qualms about marriage. In late 1949, a few months before Bert's graduation from Brooklyn Law School, his girlfriend Francine told him, I'm almost 20, you're almost 23. It's time for us to either announce our engagement or stop seeing each other. Bert told her he wasn't ready to get married, but after a few months of arguments, he reluctantly agreed. They set the wedding date for June 1951 so that Bert had time to finish school, take the bar exam, and get his career started. Bert accomplished all three of those things by the tail end of 1950. He went into business with his family friend, Herbert Weitz, and within months, he was raking in big money arbitrating insurance settlements. As the impending wedding approached, Bert resolved to break off the engagement, 
but every time he was about to broach the subject, he backed down. He was too afraid to tell Francine he didn't love her, too guilty about the pain it would cause. And then it was too late. On June 24th, Bert and Francine were married. Just two days after their honeymoon, Bert met a girl named Alice at the local tennis court. They started seeing each other a few times a week. Then, a few weeks later, Bert met Phyllis. Then there was Carol, Lenore, Judy. Every pretty young girl Bert saw, he briefly and passionately fell in love with. Notably, all the women Bert pursued were younger than him and were, in his words, pure and wholesome. This behavior seems to exemplify what psychologists call a Madonna whore complex. Men with this complex tend to divide women into two groups, either innocent, virtuous virgins, or lustful seductresses. Typically, these men will sexually pursue the whores, but only seek out committed relationships with the revered Madonnas. In Bert's case, although his affairs were usually sexual, he was primarily interested in the illusion of a relationship with the innocent young women he met. He noted that he wasn't driven by a need for sex, which he frequently received at home, but by a fantasy of falling in love with a perfect pure woman, which for whatever reason, he didn't consider his wife to be. Just a couple of months into their marriage, Francine found a condom wrapper in Bert's pocket. She didn't explode or start a fight. She just told him sternly, you're like a little boy. You'll outgrow this nonsense eventually. He didn't. Over the next six years, Bert kept philandering and Francine kept ignoring it. Her only other option was to divorce him and lose her share of his skyrocketing salary. By 1957, 30-year-old Bert was investing his law firm's profits into nightclubs real estate firms, and movie production. As long as Bert kept taking those paychecks to the bank, Francine didn't care whether he came home at night, and Bert never considered divorcing her for any of his girlfriends. Any of them, except one. On a cool evening in September 1957, Bert Pugash saw Linda Riss across the square at Joyce Kilmer Park. As he went over to introduce himself, he thought he recognized her as an actress from a film he was financing. He caught her attention and asked, Excuse me, miss, but didn't I see you in the studio at Walton-on-Thames a few weeks ago? She had no idea what he was talking about. Bert didn't really mind his mistake. It gave him the perfect segue to talk about the film set he visited in London the previous month, the celebrities he was friends with, the nightclub he owns, on and on and on. Linda was, in her own words, a very naive young girl, and he was a very successful lawyer with two Cadillacs. Linda wasn't really attracted to Bert, but he made interesting conversation. After chatting for a while, Bert asked if he could give her a ride home. She turned him down and said she was meeting someone. Bert left disappointed, but not discouraged. As soon as he got home, he grabbed the phone book, found an address for Linda Riss, and placed an order with the florist. When Linda got home that night, she told her mother and grandmother about the strange man she'd met. He wasn't very good-looking, but he was fascinating. Her grandmother told her, if a man is better looking than the devil, 
he's good looking. Just then, a delivery arrived. A dozen roses for Linda. The card said, Nice meeting you today. We'll call later. Sincerely, Bert Pugash. It was a sweet gesture. Linda thought she ought to give him a shot. When he called her later that night, she agreed to meet him the next evening at the same spot in the park. Bert courted Linda like a true gentleman. He took her to nice clubs, drove her around in his convertible, and made sure she didn't stay out too late. He almost seemed too good to be true, and as she learned, he was. On their second or third date, they were at a nightclub, still waiting for their drinks, when Bert finally dropped the bomb. He was married. Linda's eyes stung with tears. She felt like a fool. Of course she could never actually marry a man like Bert. Not that she wanted to, it was the idea of it. The idea that she was worthy of someone who drove a convertible and not a garbage truck. Bert said he was getting a divorce, that he never loved his wife. He loved her, Linda, instead. She didn't believe a word of it. He'd been lying to her this entire time. Why should she believe him now? But Bert insisted the divorce was already in the works. It should come through any day now. He begged her, Will you stick by me until then, Linda? Will you marry me once the divorce comes through? I love you, Linda. I need to see you. Why can't you tell me you'll see me? Linda looked around the club. She was all the way across the city from home with a man she barely knew and didn't trust. He was getting so worked up it was starting to scare her. She dried her tears, forced a smile and muttered, I'll let you know tomorrow. Linda made it home safe that night. She gave Bert a tentative kiss, ran upstairs and locked the door. When Bert called the next morning, she told him, I won't see you until you have your divorce. Call me when you get your papers. Linda thought she was calling Bert's bluff, but Bert took it as a challenge. He knew his wife Francine would never consent to a divorce, but what Linda didn't know wouldn't hurt her. He called up a colleague, a divorce lawyer who lived in Alabama, and asked him to mail over a blank divorce decree. Once it arrived, Bert filled it out, forged his wife's signature, and had his secretary stamp it with an illegible but official-looking seal. Next, he wrote out a postcard that said, Dear Linda, just got my divorce, finally. We'll call you when I get back from Alabama tomorrow. Love, Bert. We'll take a look at Linda's response right after this. Now back to the story. After a few dates with Bert Pugash in September 1957, 20-year-old Linda Riss was ready to completely cut ties with the 30-year-old lawyer. He'd lied to her, manipulated her, and scared the hell out of her. He was never going to divorce his wife. Married men never do. Or so she thought. When Linda got a postcard from Bert a week later, claiming he'd just been in Alabama finalizing his divorce, she started to think she might have overreacted. What if he really was telling the truth? She called Bert and agreed to meet him that night, as long as he showed her the divorce papers. Linda's mother wasn't quite so ready to forgive and forget. She told Linda to write down the docket number on the document so their lawyer could check into it and make sure it was legit. 
Linda thought this was a bit overboard, but before she went out that night, she slipped a notepad and pen in her purse, just in case. Bert had big plans for the evening. After he picked Linda up, he drove her to a nightclub he owned called The Shell House. The moment he escorted her in, the band started playing the song, Linda. Linda couldn't help but smile. He led her to a table, started to pull out her chair, then stopped. He should show her the divorce papers now, before he forgets. He led her through the room to the back office. There it was, on the desk, signed, sealed, delivered in an envelope that was postmarked from Alabama. Linda sat down at the desk to get a better look. Suddenly, a maitre d' opened the door and told Bert someone wanted to see him at the bar. As soon as he stepped out of the room, Linda pulled out her notepad and scribbled down the docket number. When she got home that night, she passed it on to her mother. It would take a few weeks before their lawyer could verify it, but for now, Linda's worries were gone. The next morning, Bert picked Linda up early and took her to breakfast before work. At noon, he stopped by her office and took her out to lunch. At five, he was back again to pick her up from work and take her out for dinner. This became a daily routine for the couple, all five weekdays. On the weekends, they spent nearly the entire day together. According to the National Center on Domestic and Sexual Violence, there are eight primary tactics used in abusive relationships to exert control over a partner. One of these is isolation. By never giving Linda a moment out of his sight, Bert minimized her contact with other people and placed himself squarely at the center of her life. After a few weeks, Bert's constant presence started to feel suffocating, but the pattern was already set. Linda felt she had no choice but to put up with it. The biggest snag in their romance was that Linda refused to have sex. She was a virgin and in 1957, it was widely expected that she stay a virgin until her wedding night. As much as Bert prodded her, she wouldn't give in. He even tried to ply her with drinks, hoping she'd get drunk enough to get her guard down, but Linda knew her limits too well. About two months into their relationship in November 1957, arguments about sex were a nightly occurrence. Bert realized there was only one way he was ever going to sleep with the object of his desire. He had a doctor friend write him a prescription for what he called knockout pills. In a study involving incarcerated sex offenders, Dr. Nicholas Groth identified three main categories of rape, motivated either by anger, power, or sadism. We should note that these categories are usually applied by investigators to help profile unknown rapists, and in real-world situations, individual sex offenders don't always fit neatly into one category. That being said, following Dr. Groth's typology, Bert's plan to drug and rape Linda seems to fall squarely in the power category. Power rapists are motivated by a desire for control over their victims. They typically use verbal intimidation instead of physical force, and they believe that in the end, their victims will enjoy the assault. At about 4 a.m. in the wee hours of a Sunday morning, Bert and Linda stumbled back into Linda's apartment after a late night out. She poured them both nightcaps, then went off to the bathroom. 
As soon as she left, Bert slipped the capsules into his palm and hovered over the coffee table. He hesitated, not out of moral concerns, but out of fear he'd be caught. But this might be his only chance. He dropped a capsule into Linda's glass, swirled it, and set it back down. Linda came back in a bathrobe, plopped down on the couch, and took a sip of her drink. She started talking, but Burke could barely hear what she was saying. His eyes were locked on her glass, watching the level of the liquid go down with every sip. Burke could feel beads of sweat drenching his skin. She was drinking it so slowly, and she still seemed fine. Sweat dripped from Bert's forehead. He threw back the rest of his drink, stood up, and opened the window. Linda was still blabbering on. Why couldn't she just finish her drink? Bert grabbed his glass, headed for the kitchen, and said, I'm going to get another one. By the time he got back, Linda's glass was empty. Bert sat down next to Linda, put his arm around her, and kissed her. She could barely keep her eyes open. He eased her down onto the couch, slid a hand under her bathrobe, and she sat up, wide awake and furious. She stood up and said, It's after four. Time for you to go. As Bert got up, he glanced over at her glass on the table and noticed the capsule hadn't fully dissolved. It was still stuck to the bottom of the glass. Bert stumbled outside, tossed the rest of the capsules, and started his car. This wasn't over. He thought to himself, I'll win yet. After that incident, Bert went back to his original strategy of verbally abusing and manipulating Linda into sleeping with him. He told her he'd heard rumors that she'd slept with dozens of men. He refused to believe she was a virgin. Every night they were together, which was every night, the arguments degenerated into shouting matches that drove Linda to tears. Eventually, she asked her friend Rita for advice. Rita replied, The only way to stop the fights is to go to bed with him, marry him, or stop seeing him. As November rolled into December, Linda had nearly forgotten about the lawyer her mother had hired to check on Bert's divorce papers. The lawyer finally called on a Saturday morning just before Christmas. He checked the docket number, and the case didn't exist. The divorce decree was forged. Linda was shaken with anger. Bert had tricked her twice. But after a moment, her fury turned into relief. This was her way out. When Bert picked her up for lunch, she would tell him it's over and she'd never have to see him again. Bert pulled up outside the building about half an hour later. Linda was already standing on the curb, waiting to meet him. As soon as he stopped the car, she said, I'm not having anything to do with you anymore. You're a fraud, Bert. He tried to stammer a response, but Linda turned around and strode right back into the building. She was free. For the next three days, Linda hung up every time Bert called. But on the fourth day, she agreed to meet him for lunch. They immediately resumed their same old schedule. Bert had promised to get a divorce, for real this time. 
but Linda didn't really care about that now. She didn't want to marry him anyway. Linda recalled, quote, I felt like I was caught in a web that I didn't know how to get out of. I was afraid of Bert's strength and his intensity and his ability to twist and turn whatever I said to his advantage. I had the feeling that he ruled me and I feared and hated that feeling. I wanted to break off the relationship, but now I was too weak." End quote. A 2015 study published in Contemporary Family Therapy listed distorted thoughts, damaged self-worth, and fear as three of the most common reasons women stay in abusive relationships. Bert's manipulation and verbal abuse made it difficult for Linda to clearly see how harmful the relationship was. Her lifelong low self-esteem made her predisposed to feel that she didn't deserve a better relationship. And she was afraid of how Bert would react if she tried to break things off. That fear wasn't unfounded. One night in May 1958, the couple came back to Linda's apartment and began their nightly routine of arguing about sex. Linda stood in front of her armoire, silently brushing her hair, and finally worked up the courage to say, Bert, I never want to see you again. Bert stepped forward and punched her in the side of the face, so hard it sent her flying onto the bed behind her. Before she could get up, he pushed her down and kept hitting her. Linda's mother called from her bedroom. Linda, what's the matter? The voice distracted Bert for long enough that Linda could get up and run out the door. She rushed down the hallway, past her mother, into the kitchen, and found a carving knife in the cupboard. She ran back to her room, right up to the door, then stopped. She realized what she was about to do. It wasn't just self-defense. She wanted to kill him. She stopped herself, walked back to the kitchen, and set down the knife. She heard the apartment door open and close as Bert ran out. Bert cried the entire drive home. He'd lost control when Linda said she didn't want to see him anymore. He was in this too deep to pull himself out. Obsessive love is recognized both as a condition of its own and as a symptom of several different mental disorders, including schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. It's hard to say which, if any, of these conditions Bert was suffering from, but his behavior seems to fit with the warning signs of obsessive love, possessiveness, excessive attention, overwhelming thoughts about the object of desire, and controlling and violent behavior. While Bert went home to brood, Linda relished her newfound freedom. She called up an old flame she'd briefly dated in 1956, long before she met Bert. His name was Larry Schwartz, and he'd just come back from deployment in Germany a few weeks ago. They made plans to see each other the next weekend. Larry was Bert's absolute opposite. Relaxed, polite, agreeable. He picked Linda up in his beat-up old station wagon, and they had a wonderful day together. They went out the next weekend, too, then the weekend after that. But Bert kept calling Linda's apartment, and every time her mother said she wasn't home. Bert knew what that meant. She was out with someone else. Without Linda, Bert was losing his grip. He couldn't eat. 
couldn't sleep, couldn't work. He didn't even bother to shave. After a few weeks, his life was in complete disarray. If Linda wouldn't answer his calls, he'd go see her in person. Linda's mother answered the door. She stood in the doorway, using her whole body to block the entrance, and called for Linda. Linda agreed to talk for a moment and let him inside. Bert told her he wanted to get back together. Linda simply said, No, it's too late. I'm just not interested. She shoved him outside before he could start pleading. As he stepped out into the hall, Bert turned to Linda and said, If I can't have you, no one else will. And when I get finished with you, no one else will want you. We'll continue the story right after this. Now back to the story. Throughout the fall of 1958, Bert Pugash called Linda Riss constantly. He had his friends, his law partner, his father call her. He sent flowers and gifts. He came by her apartment. He waited outside her office after work. And still, she refused to speak to him. Linda was now seeing her new boyfriend, Larry Schwartz, regularly, and his presence gave her the strength she needed to stand up to Bert's harassment. Her mother, Bertha, also discouraged her from seeing her old beau again. But Bert wasn't ready to give up. In late November 1958, he asked one of his former legal clients, a woman he called June, to hire someone who was willing to beat up Linda for $200. He thought it would scare her enough that she'd come back to him out of fear. June accepted the money and told Bert she'd hire someone right away. In reality, she just kept the money for herself and told Bert she had a man following Linda, waiting for the right moment to strike. After about a month, Bert was a little irritated about the lack of progress. He decided to take matters into his own hands. A week before Christmas 1958, Bert walked into Linda's office. The moment she saw him, she asked, What are you doing here? Bert opened a jewelry box and showed her a ring, a giant four and a half carat diamond ring. Linda didn't fall for it. She told him it was too late. She wasn't interested. Bert fell to his knees and started crying, pleading, Linda, please, I love you. She stepped around him, sat down at her desk and calmly replied, I don't love you and I won't go back to you. Bert pulled himself up and stumbled out. Later that evening, he staggered into an office Christmas party. He grabbed a bottle of scotch from the bar and drank it all down. He blacked out until he suddenly realized he was holding a man down and strangling him. Hands grabbed at Bert's arms, trying to pull him off. The next thing he remembers, he was waking up in his colleague's quiet office next door to the party. Bert immediately rolled over, got up, and ran toward the open window. He hadn't noticed his business partner sitting on the other side of the room. As he tried to dive through the window, they pulled him back and wrestled him to the ground. He kept screaming, I want to die! I want to die! Someone called a doctor. Soon, Bert was in a dark room. Someone was talking to him. 
Then he was being led down a dark hallway. He tried to shake himself free, but he felt a syringe pierce his arm. Everything went black. When Bert woke up, he was lying in a bright room with a strange man sitting on the edge of a bed next to him. He realized he was in a psychiatric hospital. While Bert wasn't formally diagnosed with a mental illness at this time, his friends and doctors were aware that his behavior was spiraling into dangerous territory. He was losing control of his actions and endangering both himself and others. And the best thing to do, in his doctor's professional opinion, was to bring Linda back into the picture. Later that morning, Linda's mother, Bertha, answered a call from Bert's psychiatrist, Dr. Jacobson. Bert had been ranting and raving nonstop about Linda, and he thought it would help him if Linda came down to see him. Bertha replied that Bert could drop dead. Dr. Jacobson replied that someone might die, but it probably wouldn't be Bert. He was violent and extremely unstable, and in the doctor's words, we can't keep him here forever, you know. Later that day, Bert's wife Francine arrived at the hospital and signed him out. He spent the Christmas holidays with his family, planning his next move. A few weeks after that incident, in early January 1959, Linda agreed to meet Bert for drinks after work, for five minutes and five minutes only. When she arrived at the bar, Bert was already there, nursing a scotch. She sat down and told him she didn't want to drink, they might as well get to the point. Bert told her he was giving her three choices. Number one, marry him. Number two, sleep with him one time and he'll leave her alone for good. Or number three, what happened to Victor Rizel will happen to you. Victor Rizel was a journalist who had been permanently blinded when a mobster threw sulfuric acid in his face a few years earlier. Linda was terrified she knew Bert was unstable and capable of violence, but she didn't fully believe he'd make good on the threat. He had too much to lose. He'd go to jail, lose his law license, destroy his family. She told him, Bert, you may hurt me, but remember one thing. If I go down, you go down with me. For the next few weeks, Linda received phone calls in the middle of the night all from different men whose voices she didn't recognize. All of them said the same thing before hanging up. I'm going to get you. In mid-January, she got a call at work, this time from a woman. She said Bert had paid her $200 to hire a man who'd beat her up. She kept the money without moving forward, but she was afraid Bert would find someone else who would actually go through with it. Linda got the attention of the secretary at the next desk over. She scribbled down on a notepad. Have police trace this call. Her coworker called the local precinct and Linda kept the woman on the line for over two hours while the police traced her location. During the long, winding conversation, she realized exactly how serious Bert was about hurting her. When the police finally confirmed the call's origin, Linda hung up and told the detective everything she'd heard. The detective said she could file a formal complaint and have the caller arrested, but Linda didn't see the point in that. 
The woman was trying to help her, not hurt her. What about Bert? Well, he replied, there was nothing they could do about Bert. After work, Linda and her mother Bertha went down to the station to tell another detective about the threats, the late night phone calls, the woman who had called her at work that afternoon. The detective asked if there were any other witnesses who could corroborate her story. Linda was dumbfounded. She told him Bert was a lawyer. He wasn't dumb enough to make threats in front of witnesses. So once again, there was nothing the police could do. Over the next couple months, Bert made several plans to scare Linda into coming back to him. At one point, he hired a crooked cop to help him kidnap Linda, rape her, and get her pregnant so that she'd have to marry him. They actually waited outside her building for three entire nights, ready to grab her whenever she came home. Luckily for her, Linda was already so frightened that she no longer slept at her own apartment. She bounced around between friends' houses on an irregular schedule so Bert couldn't predict where she'd be. On at least two more occasions in the spring of 1959, Linda went back down to the police station with updates on the threats. Each time, she got the same response. We can't do anything for you until something happens. Later that spring, Linda took Bert to the magistrate's court on harassment charges. Bert arrived drunk, put on his best lawyer act, and painted himself as an innocent, upstanding, married man being targeted by a crazy girl with an obsessive crush. By the time Linda got to tell her side of the story, the judge's mind was already made up. He told Bert not to contact her anymore, then said, that's it. All Linda could do was change her phone number, get a new job at a new office, and try to move on with her life. In early June 1959, Larry Schwartz proposed to her after about a year of dating. Linda was 22 now, and all her friends were getting married. She didn't want to be left behind. They didn't set a wedding date yet, but they planned an engagement party for June 14th. A week before the party on June 6th, Bert went out on a limb and visited Linda's father, Oscar, at his antique shop. Linda didn't spend much time with her father, so he wasn't aware of the full extent of Bert's stalking and harassment. When Bert came in begging for help getting Linda back, Oscar was sympathetic. He smiled sadly and passed Bert an engagement announcement. He was too late. Bert didn't realize how serious Linda and Larry were. The clock was ticking. But it wasn't too late. If he couldn't have Linda, he could at least make sure Larry couldn't either. That night, Bert asked the crooked cop he'd been scheming with if he could borrow his pistol. Bert waited across the street from Linda's apartment, his hands so sweaty he could barely keep his grip on the trigger. He waited for six hours until about 4 a.m., when Larry's old station wagon pulled onto the block. Bert followed them toward the building, hiding behind a row of parked cars. He was going to kill Linda, and Larry too, if he got in the way. The couple climbed the steps to the door. Bert struggled to grip the pistol. Then, he stopped. He wouldn't get away with killing them. He imagined himself strapped to the electric chair, 
That's what swayed Bert's mind away from murdering Linda, the possibility that he'd be punished for it. He sat down on the sidewalk, silent, until he heard them disappear into the building. Bert spent the night thinking up other ways to stop the wedding, ways that wouldn't lead to his own arrest. He kept coming back to an idea he threatened her with months earlier, the Victor Rizel option. If he blinded her and permanently scarred that beautiful face of hers, Larry wouldn't want her anymore. No one would ever want her, except for him. She would have no other choice but to take him back. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday to follow Bert's last-ditch plan to win Linda back. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as other podcast shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Ron Shapiro. Production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Crimes of Passion is written by Kate Gallagher and Haley Gray and is researched by Haley Gray. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.